attorney at law, advocate at heart. Tis the season, election season that is, and October surprises are in full supply. Sometimes we even get a resurfaced picture of a candidate or a celebrity in blackface. We're looking at you, Justin Trudeau, Ralph Northam. So today, we're going to dive deep into cultural appropriation. What is it? Why do we care? Who decides? Where did it come from? Stick around, and I'm going to break it down. But first, I'm an attorney, so I have to give a disclaimer. This podcast does not constitute legal advice. It does not create an attorney-client privilege. And another disclaimer, especially when discussing sensitive, emotional, non-legal, cultural topics like this, I am one person. And I think that it's important to know that no one thing or experience is true of all people within a race or an ethnicity or a group. But I also firmly believe that my experience is no less powerful than anyone else's. I also believe that experience is infinitely less powerful than fact. But more on that later. Um, It's important to note that a lot of the ideological social theories that I disagree with do tend to have this sprinkle of truth that's that's underlying them and or that rather those social theories are playing on. And usually it's a deeply emotional truth or theory that calls upon shared experiences of a group of people. And um, often that is uh, the shared experiences of Black people. And so I want to start this discussion first, um, kind of into going into like that underlying truth that's that's behind um, the pain of cultural appropriation. And then I want to discuss, secondly, the opportunistic exploitation of that truth and of that shared experience. Next, I want us to talk about the real fatal flaw of cultural appropriation um, and kind of go into then how that uh, that leads to some uh, apologetics for uh, the conservative position on on uh, cultural appropriation. And then lastly, I want us to talk about the solutions and what the future looks like with this. Um, I think that this is going to be a great discussion, particularly if maybe you're a conservative parent that's raising or has adopted um, biracial children or um, has adopted children that are black or biracial or children of color. Maybe you work as a teacher in an inner city school, or maybe you just care about fully understanding the truth of an issue more than what's provided by a Dr. Phil segment or a Haley Bieber comment section on Instagram or Kim Kardashian headline. And we are going to get into the conservative apologetics of this issue. If you just hang tight with me through this program, I think that there is a role for those organizations out there that are providing encouragement and satire of really far leftist ideology that is extremist. I think there's a role for those organizations that um, kind of provide that that sanity, that that encouragement, that that reinforcement. Um, but 
you will always find here on my podcast that I dig into the more nuanced layers and dig deeper. Um, It's always going to be about digging deeper with me and being a deep thinker. There's no knee jerk reactions here. Deep thinkers only, please. So (laughs) let's get started. Um, So first, I think that it would be helpful to kind of talk about how I was raised by two um, Black parents and four Black grandparents who raised me to be strong and confident in my color and my lineage. Um, Black history was something that was used to empower and encourage me and not just black history on a national and international level, but just even just black history within our own family, our own family's lineage and our, our own relatives struggles and, um, and successes and overcomings. And so I think that where there is no, um, representation of people who look like you in a space that it can be our role and our blessing to create that representation. And so I I still remember back in my childhood being in preschool and getting up one night out of bed and going to the kitchen and seeing my mom at the kitchen table with an arsenal of shades of brown crayons. And she was coloring in picture books to show brown kids in the characters so that I could read about kids of all colors and not just any one race or color, because that's how the world is. The world is full of people of lots of different colors, people that look like me and people that don't. And so that's what she wanted to make sure that um, that she was seeing portrayed in the stories that, that I was getting read at bedtime. And, um, you know, I can also remember being six years old and begging my parents to get me horseback riding lessons. And, um, I, when they caved in and they, and they did get me those lessons, I can remember going to Barnes going to horseback riding barns and horseback riding lessons with not one soul that looked like me in the whole barn. Sometimes feeling like that I was being stared at the whole time and that I was being judged. But you know what? I, I, I think that that was important because I can, I can remember coming into adolescence and my parents instilling in me that beauty and handsomeness and attractiveness doesn't have a color. So I never had preferences for one race of boyfriend over another. And I'm so grateful for that, that they granted me that freedom to fall in like and fall in love with all different colors of crushes and not to fall in love um, with just, you know, one shade of people, but to truly by, by, by making my by making my horizons of love and interest not limited by color, it also kind of primed me to then be looking for love for what was on the inside because I they, they were telling me not to be distracted by this thing that in society is so huge for when we first look at a person. And so it really primed me to really be looking at an individual for what was on the inside and for what they were expressing on the in, from the inside out and through their character and through their actions because I wasn't distracted by something that was on the outside. Um, and so I'm so grateful for that. And then, you know, even more so from that, I'm so, so, so grateful that I was primed to fall in love with my own skin, and my own heritage, not as something that was inherently superior 
not because black is king, but because Jesus is king. And there is no greater identity than being his child that he placed in the skin that you're in for the purpose of showing truth and light and representing him well. So unfortunately, the reality is that not all children of color or white children are raised in such an amazing home. And so let's talk a little bit about how some elements some of those elements are at play here. I, I want to take a broad look at the beauty industry, um, how, how it profits off of telling us as a woman to get fuller lips and bigger butts and a bigger bust and suntan skin. Well, for the Black race, generally, these are things that tend to come genetically in abundance. And so you would think that then that would be the standard of beauty in the beauty industry, right? Uh, but instead, it often feels like these elements of blackness in body and skin and hair um, and face are uh, things that are not um, always seen as good and beautiful unless they are injected or implanted or sprayed onto someone with lighter skin or straighter hair. And that makes sense because if we are made to feel like that we're always having to seek after something that doesn't come natural to us or doesn't come genetically to us, then that's where we create an industry. That's where we create a demand that necessity, something outside of what we have naturally, that necessity is the mother of invention. And so meanwhile, the bodies, lips, and skin of Black women have been so often degraded as, you know, stereotypically ghetto, vulgar, hypersexualized. And so I want to be clear, though, that this part, part of this stems from the commoditization of these stereotypes by Black artists in the entertainment industry and part of improving how Black natural hair is regarded stems from improving Black attitudes towards natural hair. I am not the only Black woman with natural hair who has experienced receiving more negativity from members of my own race than that that white people have ever have ever had have ever expressed that's that's common um and i think that it's important that although i do not agree with some i i don't agree with some that say that the negative uh the negative attitudes that are within um that are towards black hair within the black race, I don't agree that that necessarily stems from white people and white supremacy. I think that there needs to be a greater sociocultural accountability for the prevailing attitudes that do not serve black progress. We, we have to own up and require better of those who become black leaders, because I think it's clear that athletes and celebrities and rappers and singers, they're, they're typically insufficient for what we need to inspire the next generation to everyday greatness of parenthood, commitment to marriage, literacy, employment, 
faith. Um, and so I'm, I, I, I digress on that. I do think that, uh, that a lot of times it, when we're talking about those layers of understanding kind of how um, black hair, black beauty, and all of that is regarded, it can be really helpful to um, listen to some black spoken word poets. I'll drop a couple of videos in the description box that I really, really appreciate. Um, there's one called Afro So Big by Jay Nichelle. And there's another one called The Average Black Girl by Ernestine Morrison. And um, I think that those are excellent resources to chew up the meat and spit up the bones. Artistic expression is, I think, a, a great way to kind of understand and and be exposed to some of these layers and elements because, um, because poets have uh, such an ability to convey feelings and emotions that um, that social theories really, really, really fall short in in bringing understanding to these dichotomies. They really, I think that poets really have a, a beautiful way to convey that in in words and in emotions and in feelings. Um, so art can be very powerful for understanding and being exposed to a lot of layers of that. Um, so coming back to what we were talking about. Um, it, so, so when you have individuals that do not have the amazing household that I was raised in, um, that taught me to love my skin and love the skin of everyone else as a gift from God to see myself as beautiful and to grow up never once wishing that I was white, even though I attended a predominantly white school district. And we see that those not raised in the kind of upbringing that I was raised in may be even more prone to feeling frustration um, when the thing that societally or historically um, was looked down upon for one color of people becomes revered and commoditized by an individual or costumized by an individual um, of a different race. And so this is what is typically referred to as cultural appropriation. It is this taking or appropriating um, by one individual of a certain culture um, to take on or appropriate that of a different culture for clout, for money, or for entertainment. And um, that's kind of what it generally comes down to. Um, and, and particularly, it it's a cultural appropriation occurs rather than cultural appreciation occurs when there's no respect discussion or no payment of some monetary form to um to the nation or the people where the culture was appropriated from and so this um this appropriation can be something that is done with hair hairstyling um music dance food clothing this phenomenon um, causes a lot of frustration when it seems like, for example, an influencer is credited with a hairstyle or creating a recipe that in reality, their followers just have not been exposed to the culture that, that, that actually originated from. And the influencer has made no attempt to inform them of that. And um, 
So some additional examples can come from how historically there were movie studios that would rather paint on a famous actor's face to put them into blackface um, rather than hire an available actor of uh, the race that was actually being portrayed. Another example could be that, you know, many hairstyles that um, that are uh, used today by um, individuals in the black race, many of which are pursuing a natural hair uh, journey. Many of those hairstyles can come from historically the necessity of keeping hair untangled, especially when working outside in the sun during the days of slavery. I can remember in the 90s, many um, within the black community becoming frustrated and disturbed when it became kind of widely publicized and discussed that BET, um, Black Entertainment Television, a channel on on basic cable, that it was not Black-owned. And, um, you know, so that's kind of the background on how this concept came to be. Um, It really kind of boils down to that it gets really old to feel like that there are things that on a daily basis you may as a person of color worry about you know wearing or doing that could come off as stereotypical and then to see on uh, a tv or on instagram that something is done by an influencer and then that is widely uh, glorified and regarded as something amazing that you as a person of color may not feel like in society that you could do or wear or say openly without being thought of in a disparaging way. And so I want to move on to the second part of our discussion and kind of talking about where a a kind of opportunistic exploitation comes in of these truths that we've just, you know, kind of unpacked in, in, in these walks of life that many, many have experienced. So um, what happens when all of these valid feelings of frustration kind of become this perfect soil for so-called allies and so-called anti-racists to leverage in their uh, alleged war on white supremacy? Um, I, it's, it's, it's amazing that everything from a white student wearing an Asian inspired prom dress to a black student dressing in cosplay can easily um, in this kind of bully hostile culture that we've created over social media. um, All of that can become an example of um, what uh, could be referred to as modern day cultural colonialism. And the, the angle for um, the, the daily injustices that take place for any individual, because we know that racism still exists, that then becomes fuel for the fire of this racial division and race obsession that is taking place in our country right now. And so we have ignorance as to these issues that we're unpacking in this podcast today. I think that that just adds to the frustration and the division um, among those that are experiencing those daily injustices. And so that's what I want to help prevent 
with this podcast. I want to help build bridges of understanding that may not be fully unpacked in other conservative resources so that you can understand things and you can build conservative apologetics from an understanding of really one of empathy and one of understanding rather than one that is coming from kind of a a one-sided approach that's really meant to be more of an encouragement than um than a a resource for understanding and learning and unpacking and and really digging deep into all of these nuances so the third area that we're going to kind of go into is is really talking about what exactly is the problem. So I think that it's important that we look at how anything, anything that we're looking at that's an extremist ideology, um, that's a leftist ideology, especially a social theory, a cultural or a social, or a cultural or a theoretical social theory, um, we really have to take that perspective and that theory all the way to its furthest logical end. That is where we find out if this is um, something that's tenable, if this is something that is uh, sustainable, if it's something um, valid. And so um, uh, I think that that's where we have to go. And so when we do that for cultural appropriation, we have to start asking when we're seeing uh, death threats and stalking and, and doxing and trying to get people fired, we really need to start looking at the workability of this, of this concept. And so the workability issue that I really have with cult, with cultural appropriation is um, multi-layered. First, I think that the first question becomes who really uh, defines black culture or any culture. So, you know, using black culture as an example, we know that the black entertainment television, the channel, their slogan was, I don't know if it still is, but at one point it was that black culture lives here. And so here we look at what, uh, what black entertainment television was or, or, or is um, putting forth. We look at how it, it puts forth vulgar music videos and, and, uh, and sensationalizes urban crime and glorifies a life of crime. Um, that doesn't define blackness for me. Um, and in fact, I would posit that my blackness cannot be defined. And so we move on to the next layer of things. So if a culture cannot be defined, if black culture can't really be defined sufficiently as a concept, then who owns it? It could be argued that um, black culture is defined by black history, black struggle, uh, and the ownership of that culture then belongs to those who are of black descent. But we know that black history and black struggle has affected different black people differently, which leads us to find different things offensive or not offensive. Um, it, it has affected different people differently. Um, and so that leads us to the, the final layer, which really is then who decides what is cultural appropriation. Um, if we're, if we're looking to members of the culture, then that's really a circular answer because what, what, how this, how this question then really plays out is, um, you know, the offending appropriated, um, 
the defending the offending appropriator defends him or herself by uh, sometimes informing us that he or she has asked one or more members of the appropriated culture before appropriating and that those members of that culture were accepting or even encouraging of the hairstyle, the costume, or the mascot that is now um, being deemed culturally appropriated. Um, and so the, the appropriator will often, you know, defend themselves by saying that this was actually, um, this is actually approved by someone of that culture as honoring their culture or sharing their culture with others in a broader way than, um, than maybe that individual uh, has got had the opportunity to. And so um, it, the, the response to that can then be that it's possible that um, those persons encouraging that alleged appropriation may have not felt comfortable sharing that they were offended by the alleged appropriation. But I think that we have to keep in mind that assuming something like that is to take that person's power and voice away and to often replace it with the voices of white so-called allies and to say that, you know, I know that they're not speaking for themselves and I can speak better for them. I'm not a member of that culture, but I can speak up better for them as an ally and say that that's probably not what they meant and just dismiss them. And that's a form of whitewashing that I don't often see addressed by those who call themselves allies of other cultures, but it's true. And then another thing that may be considered is that, um, you know, maybe that individual didn't want to lose a customer or a friend. Um, but again, you know, that's, that's to take their voice away. Similarly, um, it can also be said by some that are, you know, arguing with the uh, appropriator that's defending themselves. It can also be said sometimes that the voice of those um, encouraging members of the culture that are supporting the appropriation, um, sometimes people can undermine their voice by saying that their experience is not the only one. And um, it's not representative just because that the person who you talk to was approving of of whatever appropriation that you were about to carry out, it doesn't mean that that's really representative of what other people within that culture or that race feel. And I think that that it's a singular voice. So that's why that argument is being made, but so is anyone's singular voice. To say that the existence of an opposing voice means that just by existing that then that then either other ones matter more or less or that they're canceled out, um, you know, that kind of negates the argument because necessarily where there are conflicting voices, um, the action then probably can't be unequivocally cultural appropriation because we don't have a consensus on what everyone within that race or that culture feels. And I don't know if that's, e that, that's not even possible in, in any circumstance. And so um, instead, um, you know, we really, on this podcast, my goal is always for us to look at the world as it is and not just as it should be. And so 
instead of seeing um, death threats and stalking and doxing and trying to get people fired from their jobs and bullying at schools and students being labeled a racist by their peers, all of this is, is, is taking place over a cultural ownership that really can't be defined or established. And um, that's not the way it should be. So in a perfect world, the reality is that many times there are things in the beauty industry or uh, the music industry or in art or in culture that do not become widely accepted and societally accepted until um, it becomes mainstream with more white, uh, more white participants or users of um, of that behavior or culture or um, or item, and so this can really, unfortunately lead to also some negative impacts like um, increased cost for items as they become more widely appealing, um, decreased availability for those items as more people are buying them and are interested in them, um, but also unfortunately decreased quality of, uh, of, uh, of those ingredients or changes to the formula in, in a way that impacts the effectiveness for the groups that were originally using the products. That's a lot of what we see happen within black hair care is that certain products become um, more widely used by people that have curly hair or that have um, hair in need of moisture or in need of, you know, certain help that, that, uh, that, uh, a product that has before that point in time been a black product, it, it helps with those problems. It unfortunately sometimes does not help in the same way. So if you have like a comment section on a product where people are complaining and saying like, oh my gosh, like this product is too heavy for my hair. Well, that's in part because maybe it wasn't created for that specific hair type, but it's possible then that the creators of that product um, will then change the formula of the product in order to suit the customers that have started buying it that are of a different hair type. And so we see that then the market changes and then the product changes. And so that's, that's an unfortunate um, outcome of what can happen when we see um, products or uh uh, industries start to become more mainstream. Um, but uh, I want us to talk a little bit about what the solutions can be to this problem. Because like I said, we have people who um, are being accused of cultural appropriation and then, um, you know, receiving death threats and um, being doxxed with their personal information on the internet um, their, their home address, their, uh, their phone number, their, um, place where they work, trying to get people fired, being stalked. And, you know, it's especially hard to insert things like the concept of cultural appropriation and all the hostility that that brings into the pressure cooker, the hormonal pressure cooker of high school or middle school or elementary school, because kids are mean. And, um, you know, we see now that a lot of kids that uh, really think of themselves as allies um, are taking it upon themselves to carry out a kind of cultural vigilante, vigilante 
um, actions in, you know, disparaging and, and uh, making kids outcasts who they have deemed racist or cultural appropriators. And it shouldn't be that way. So I want us to talk a little bit about solutions. I think that it is, um, I think anyone would say that it's a wonderful thing uh, if an influencer so desires to use their platform to inform their followers about culture in other countries and about um, history and how that has kind of played into uh, the contributions that different races have made um, to our nation. But it really is impossible to do that comprehensively, especially in art, um, where there are so many uh, influences that are coming together to make a genre and, and influences that are almost uh, at, at, at this point in, in our, our society, they're almost um, infungible. You can't really break them apart. They've kind of become homogenous. They're all mixed together. Like, you know, how we describe America as a melting pot. We've gathered so many different influences from so many different places that it can be hard to really pick those apart to understand. And, and it's not always, it's not always possible a, but B it's not always sufficient to appease those who pride themselves on being allies. Um, because there are some allies who probably feel that there shouldn't be anyone besides those that are of, uh, the original um, culture using or um, demonstrating or, um, you know, really spreading awareness about um, those things that the ally feels is culturally appropriated. And so I think that really one solution could be really just focusing the language and redirecting it away from the idea of cultural appropriation to really describing um, things that uh, that don't do a good job of, of respecting or utilizing other cultures as just, you know, they, they just are tasteless. They just lack authenticity. They lack creativity. They feel contrived. And especially when you're looking at art or music, it's okay if something just doesn't look good or just doesn't feel right. You know, in art and music, we are in fact allowed to use those very technical terms of feeling right or looking good. Um, and so it's okay um, for the identity of um, the artist or the creator of something to, to that identity of them to then affect our opinion on what we think of the art or music or movies. There's so many times when there's um, a, a movie that's made or a song that's made and then knowing more about that person you either like that song more or you like that song less or you don't want to watch that movie again or you want to share that movie with more people because you just appreciate um, even more about knowing more about the actor or their beliefs you you understand and appreciate them more so it's okay uh, to be affected or unaffected um by a, the the beauty or uh, or the history of of a piece of um, art or entertainment, um, and I I really do hope that this conversation has been helpful because I I'm happy to dive into any of these topics that we've kind of brushed over a little bit more. Uh, particularly, I really feel like I might need a follow up on 
um, really talking about uh, the black natural hair journey, because um, I think that there's a lot that people would love to learn about that. And um, so please do um, let me know. I want to know what you think. Drop me a rating and a comment. Let me know your thoughts. What do you think about cultural appropriation as a concept and how we're seeing it unfold in society? What is the best way um, that we can go about addressing it? Please follow and subscribe on your platform of choice. I am uh, getting this podcast onto nearly every platform at this point. We've got it on Apple. We've got it on Spotify got it on iHeartRadio and probably about a dozen other platforms. Um, So let me know on your platform of choice um, what other hot button issues could I address um, and really unpack on here. So I'm going to leave you with this inspiration from Marianne Williamson. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous, Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Keep shining. Take care.